welcome back to another episode of e-commerce on tap brought to you by sourceify today we have a really special guest on steven miller the ceo of sourceify steven thank you so much for coming on yeah absolutely thanks for having me obviously we've been talking about this for a long time so glad we can make it work i know so before we dive into sourceify and everything that sourceify does i want to get your background and your story because i know you have a lot of supply chain experience and I want to hear more about how you started to work at ISBA and now leading the team at Sourceify. So you know, if you can share a few minutes of your supply chain background, that would be awesome. So after school, kind of tried the outdoor lifestyle. I was a raft guide for a little bit. And then I was a ski instructor or a skiing photographer out west. And my buddy who I went to school gave me a call and just said, we're starting a clothing company. And so I was like, are you in? And the snow was melting. It was that time of year. I was like, yeah, I'm in. And we ended up moving to North Carolina. Uh, and our buddy Chris was involved as well. And we started like a sustainable fashion business probably 15 years before that was like really big. And so we worked with fabric manufacturers and yarn suppliers and even like down to the fiber because nobody was making this type of yarn. So we built like a supply chain from the ground up and then brought it up to where we were selling shirts. We had a collegiate license, we had a major like baseball license and like things really took off. And then the company actually ended up getting acquired. And so I worked there for a little bit and then where my wife works, they had lost their logistics director. And so they asked if I could come on board and I met with my boss and he was awesome. Easy to get along with older experience. So like I knew I could learn a lot from him. So I agreed and went over to the more corporate side of a big off-price retailer with hundreds of stores and way more buying power than I ever had. So all of a sudden these people I couldn't get on the phone, couldn't wait to talk to me. So like a different side of, from like a startup to a more corporate environment. So I got exposed there for three years and. We worked on opening DCs and new stores and lots of things like that, rolling around brick and mortar. And then all of a sudden, ISBA kind of gave me a ring out of nowhere and poached me from there and talked me into being a consultant. And so obviously that led to ISBA taking a strategic investment in Sourceify. And I know I always loved the sourcing side of things. And so when that opportunity came up, I raised my hand and was like, I would love to be in charge of Sourceify, whether it's an interim or long term. And so Obviously, as that used to be your spot before you got under the big lights. And yeah, it's been great. The team is awesome that you had built previously to this. And I just really meshing with them and everybody there and going in a good direction and adding clients. And it's been great. It's kind of like my path to how I got here. But it's been well, eight months now at Sourceify and over two years in ISBA. That's awesome. That's so cool. I want to really dive into buying power because I feel like so many brands, when they're starting out, especially in the e-commerce world, they lack buying power. And so I want to hear from your perspective, what was it like going from this small, medium-sized brand that you had started to now all of a sudden transitioning to a company that had that buying power? Describe that experience for us and describe what it's actually like calling up a factory and having them excited and eager to put you up front in the production line. Yeah, I would say the hardest part, and we deal with this when we bring on clients as well, is I never realized that the factories that have just a little capacity, those are where you want to be because they're retaining clients, they're doing a good job. And so you have to really sell yourself to these people. That was something I really took for granted was I thought everybody was willing to work with anybody from over here that was a good company. And it's quite the opposite. They're very selective. They don't want to choose someone who they're going to invest time and money in and they're just going to leave or it's a one-time order. So I was like very surprised on how selective some of these factories are. And again, that's a big leverage point of source of bias. We have people over in these areas of the world that go and lobby on behalf of the client talk about why they're so good, why they're going to grow, like who their investors are, what they've done previously. And so the factories are very, way more interested than I thought about that. And from a little startup, it's we're knocking on the door and it's okay, I'll talk to you. Maybe we get up to a million dollars a year of spend. And 
You go to a corporate environment where you have $25 million a year of spending, people are actually looking for you. They're asking for you to change. And all of a sudden, things get a little bit easier. And we see that with clients we've had at Sourceify, where as they grow and they get consistent and their forecast gets a little more set and they're ordering frequently, like month after month or quarter after quarter, they become like a very appetizing piece of these factories once you have a little bit of history. And so that's the same thing, like the biggest challenge of coming over and switching factories is terms are hard, especially when you're small because you don't have a lot of leverage. And so your leverage as a smaller person is consistency. And most people don't know that, but if you can consistently map out, okay, I'm going to order quarterly. This is going to be my average thing. You walk through a forecast, update them monthly, like factories love that. And they're going to take that and see that you're organized and treat you as a better partner. And that's where you can really leverage terms and some of these other things. So sometimes it is on spend, but a lot of times it's really on organization. I think that's a really unique point because I feel like so many brands, especially when they first go on Alibaba or these other marketplaces to find a factory, they think they're the hottest one in the room. And what they need to realize is that all of these factories, they have to manage and understand their own production lines. And that includes raw materials, that includes staff, that includes so much that goes into actually producing your product. And so for them, the companies that are consistently ordering product, the better and the better they're going to be able to treat those customers as well. And so I think it's a really unique point that you touched on that a lot of brands go into a factory situation thinking that, you know, hey, we've got this power dynamic figured out. But at the end of the day, like you said, the best factories, they typically have a near full production line. And for them to want to go expand their production line for a new client, they really have to understand, is this client worth it? And is it even worth it to go through the sampling process for this new client? And so I think so many e-commerce founders overlook that aspect of production. And I think it's a really unique insight that you've had through Sourceify. And so I want to dive in and unpack that because I know Sourceify, we've obviously got team members in China, Vietnam, Mexico, India, really all across the globe. And I'm curious, do you see any variance across country when you know we're approaching a new factory for a client or what's a variance? in production across these different countries? Because I know a lot of our customers and people listening are always asking, I have production in China. Maybe I want to near shore to Mexico. Maybe I want to explore production in India. Well, what does that really look like inside Sourceify? That's obviously the hot topic right now. We get a lot of people that come in every week and they want to talk about what we can do for them and questions about sourcing. And the question every single person is always asked is, can I look at other options outside of China? Or maybe they're in China at this point and they want to look at other options outside of China. And so one thing we found is over the past 12 months, just with the political environment, more and more people are doing this and not just on a startup scale, but like major manufacturing from Fortune 500 companies. And so as people start moving to these other countries, all of a sudden there's more business available for these better factories and their MOQ just starts going up. It's like this time last year for dish towels, we quoted out the other day and we had quoted out the same project the year before. And 2000 was not a problem in 2000 was not a problem next year. But now they won't even look at anything that's not a 10,000 MOQ or above, which on their side of the argument, they're going to choose efficiency every time and what's best for them. And if they have a customer that's going to put in a very large order and then a medium-sized order, they're going to err on the side of the large order just because they're going to expect that company to be more established and have more money behind it. So it's not surprising to see that, but we do catch some people off guard when they realize how much the MOQs have raised. And China has not, theirs have not gone up. If anything, they've gone down and been more competitive in that space. The small under $5 million in revenue company, they can really diversify what they're offering and get a lot more colors, a lot more sizes, a lot more different variations in China than they can anywhere else. Because the investment in inventory would be so big, you'd have to carry that for months. And so that's hard to do cash flow wise for small businesses. I always tell everyone, like, 
I don't feel that China's going anywhere in the trade segment. And if anything, it's going to be better for smaller sized companies that have moved their large production over to other areas of the world. But again, like there are great options in Vietnam. That's a part that's like really growing and diversifying what they can do. India has just been fantastic for some of the natural fibers and wood products and, and textiles. Like they're diversifying what they can do too. But anything that's remotely regulated, if you need FDA compliance, that's hard to find in other countries besides the US, unless it's China. And if you're going to be making something and you're going to be trying it out, there's really no way of getting around China. We always look. We always look. We're going to look to prices, but it's going to be pretty obvious. Totally. I think as I look back on SourceFi's history, especially during the trade wars in 2018 and 2019, where we were hiking up tariff rates, so many companies were now looking into Vietnam and India and these other countries and really scrambling because they were going to have to pay so much more tariffs for their same products coming from China. And what they realized, especially the bigger companies, like you said, that distribute to big box retailers that need to go through these audits, these factories outside of China, they don't have those audits in order to produce and be distributed into these big box retailers or these other retail outlets. And so I think it's a really good point that you hit on in terms of you've got to understand what kind of audits or you know FDA approvals or whatever it may be that you need to import and sell your product into America or even in Europe. There's different regulations over there too, right? And so I think that's a really unique point that a lot of brands overlook as they say, hey, I want to explore producing my product in Vietnam or India or whatever, wherever else it may be. I want to touch on the net costs that we look at Sourceify because I think a lot of people, number one, they look at unit costs, but I think our supply chain team really does a great job of looking at net costs and what goes into that. And so I'm curious if you could walk us through that process of, okay, we got unit costs to look at, we've got volumes to look at, we've got freight, duty, tariffs. You, especially from your time at ISBA, have a full understanding of what actually goes into a landed cost. And so when you think about improving supply chain efficiencies and improving supply chain costs, what's that whole picture look like in your head? Yeah, and it's interesting. The cool thing about what we do is we get to see how 50 different people set up their supply chains and see what worked, what didn't work, what's a good idea, what we would recommend they change. And for instance, like we had someone the other day come in and they were buying widget A here and widget B there, and they were shipping them separate into the U.S. They were keeping them separate at the fulfillment center. And as most people know, you have a pick fee for every order. So you're paying a dollar for the order and 50 cents per item. All of a sudden they had $2 just invested in the order with pick fees and things like that. And they had to buy the box from the fulfillment center and do all these other things. And it ended up adding up, right? When you get shipping and things like that, because what we recommend is we'll say, hey, we'll take those two factories. We'll see if we can one, beat the price. And a lot of times we find savings for a lot of these brands, but sometimes maybe they have a really good market rate and they have a really good situation. Maybe we can find the same price, but where we find them savings is we can pull both of those items into our packaging factory over in Shenzhen and we can get the box made that they're already buying from the fulfillment center for 10 times the price, hit it overseas for a fraction of the cost, say a dollar on pick fees, put it in a container and ship it maybe on a 20 foot or 40 foot instead of two LCL shipments. And all of a sudden they're saving all this money that is just like you said, that's part of their net cost. And you don't really realize that there's options to save there, one consolidation and just efficiency. So we'll get products over where it comes in a box like that. It has the two items in there. And as we call it, like lick and stick, the fulfillment center just puts a label on it and it goes out. No extra cost, just an order fee. And so when you start to break down all of that, you really do see the savings from a macro level on your product from start to finish. Totally. 
Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. So many people just look at the unit cost and they really need to look at the cost to get their product to their customer. And how do you do that in the most effective manner? I know one instance we've had in the past where there was package sizing requirements of UPS and they were shipping through UPS. And if it's a large box versus a medium or small box and their size of the box was literally off by an inch or two. And just by cutting down that size of the box by an inch, they're able to save 20% in their shipping costs by being able to fit in a different parameter with UPS. And so I think there's so many different angles that you can look at a supply chain through. And I think one of our strengths at Sourceify is just being able to look at the whole picture instead of just working with the factory and just looking at unit cost. But I know there's been, and it's really amazing, I think, for our team to be able to find direct unit cost savings. And I know there's been some instances this year where we're saving like 20, 30% of like a unit cost for a company. And I'm just curious, like, how had that happened this year? How has that gone down? Even I've been amazed by some of the work that our sourcing team has done. And maybe if there's an instance that you could walk us through of company A is paying X amount of dollars, and then we came in, found them a better factory and negotiated a better term for them. What does that look like actually behind the scenes at Sourceify? So I will say that we've seen enough of these where I can start to see like the red flags. And so I may all go through that. And so when I talk to somebody, we always price things out. So like you may have great freight rates or want to handle the freight, be the importer of record. Great. And so we'll give you that for pricing. You can handle the freight. But just in case we have more competitive rates, which we do a little more than half the time with most people, we'll offer to use our resources to save money. Now, a lot of people don't want to deal with customs. They don't want to deal with all that stuff. So they just give me the DP price. Now, freight has gone down 80, 90% in the last year and a half. And so if these people have been purchasing like during COVID when freight was just absolutely crazy and they had a DP price and they never knew what they were paying for that shipping and they were just paying one all-in rate, I know we're going to save them money because if their rate hasn't come down when containers have gone from $20,000 to $2,000 pop, something's wrong. And so when I see that, I don't know instantly, this manufacturer, this middleman has obviously gotten greedy and kept that margin and just benefited. And so I know when I see that, like that's one. And two is if I see like a middleman, which People don't know this, but a lot of people on Alibaba or these other sites, like they're not working directly with one factory or for one factory. They're outsourcing to anybody that has capacity. So it's a card to and really know what you're doing. That person's also upping that margin as well, but they're not really providing much of a service other than just transactional. And so Alibaba is doing most of that work anyways. It's very interesting to see when I see like a middleman or like a parent company or something like that on top of a fixed price that's never been adjusted. Your unit costs like slowly change and every time we get an order in, that DP price should fluctuate based on the market of the freight. And that's why we always get your experts price, get your FOB price, and then we'll quote freight every single time so you know your market value. So I know when we see that, like I know what's at least 15 to 20% like off the bat, especially if it's a larger product. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's a great explanation. And as we wrap up here on e-commerce on tap, one of my favorite questions that I like to ask guests is, what is one question that I didn't ask you about supply chains that you want to be asked and answered. So it's this time where you get to think about a question and ask yourself and then give the audience an answer. So I don't know if there's a question that comes top of mind right now, but I know the audience is excited to hear what question comes up. Huh, I wonder. I always live in, I saw one of the sporting shows, they call like news or noise. I think it'd be good for you to like choose something in the news and just see. Do you think this is actually a problem or this is all hype? Because there's a lot of people being scared and like I said, ton of people coming in and say, I got to get out of China. And we talk about, you really don't. You realize that the likelihood of that happening is so far-fetched and there's so much, so it's just not, 
likely to happen. And if it does, you're going to get booted out as a small manufacturer in these, or as a small person in these other manufacturers outside, because someone's going to come in and buy out that capacity anyways. And so it's like people wanting to nearshore, I get it. If it's a duty play or if it's like a freight play, it makes sense if you could find something closer to the U.S. But people that wanting to get out that are only worried about getting shut out or something happening where they're not able to produce over there, I don't think that's going to happen. So I think that's really got people scared, but it's more of like how the Weather Channel calls everything a magma storm now, and it's really just the old batch and thunderstorm. I don't know. I think you need a news release segment where you can ask people about current topics in the supply chain world. That's a good one. That's a good one. Steven, thank you again for coming on e-commerce on tap, brought to you by Sourceify. If people want to get in touch with Sourceify or follow you, where can they find you? Info at Sourceify.com is a great place to get into our ecosystem. And then you can also find me on LinkedIn. It's Steven T. Miller. I'm working for Sourceify. Awesome. Thank you again, Stephen. It was a pleasure having you on.